0: how's my level am i good a little loud i can hear my echo off the skate park that's better all right it is good to be back together again i mean we can't say that enough it was a weird couple weeks um in in isolation i didn't have my buddies the pastors to hang out with i would get messages from them on my phone and they just sound like old men and just kind of sad <laughs> i'm glad i'm glad they're recovering um, all right. Um, all right. Our text this morning is going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Uh oh. We've already started with the wind. Here's this magnet on the aluminum. I'm in mean, on the aluminum here. Let's try this. Let's try that. Let's see how long that works for. All right. Today we're going to break up our verses. We're going to start in verse 4. We're going to break up this section into four smaller sections, which are really observations about life under the sun. And I think these observations uh, that the preacher is going to share with us today are are pretty simple. They're not difficult to understand and say, okay, I get what that means. Um, But today I'm going to try to illustrate these observations in ways that hopefully help us to appreciate uh, on a deeper level, just what the preacher is saying to us um, and the wisdom he has for us this morning. So we'll do that, and at the end we'll consider what God has done for us in Christ and how his coming uh, changes everything and redeems our labor and our relationships with one another. So like I said, we're going to be in uh, Ecclesiastes 4, verse, starting in verse 4. It says this, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. So in our first section here, we're met with kind of two extremes and a middle better way. The first extreme is seen when Solomon says that all toil and skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor now before we get into this when we say toil or work what do we mean are we only referring to the time when we're at our place of employment when we're clocked in Um, i don't think so i think to work simply means to to use the body and mind that god gave us to create to organize to maintain to produce uh, to protect to assist right to accomplish something to use the energy we have to fulfill a purpose So yes, factory workers do this, carpenters do this, um, but mothers and fathers also do this, right? Retired people do this, and even children in school work. Now what Solomon is saying here is that under the sun, he has observed that we are driven to work, right? To invent, to innovate, to advance um, by envy, by jealousy of our neighbors, and we know this, right? We have many terms for this in our society. Um, what do we call it when we're trying to say e- stay equal, if not ahead, of our neighbor's possessions or lifestyle? right? I was at a, a garage sale recently with a friend. I do a lot of garage selling in the summer. Um, and, and we found a guy selling his top-end Vintage hi-fi stereo. It was like absolutely beautiful, right? I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to that kind of stuff, but I'll spare you the nerd talk um, about how many watts it put out and all that kind of stuff, and just hit you with the price tag: twenty-five hundred dollars <laughs> at a garage sale, right? So you know that originally it would have been even more. And I remember seeing this stereo, and I'm just like, this thing is beautiful, right? Like I can even I can appreciate it, and yet. I'm thinking, like, who in the world would spend this kind of money on this thing? You know? And, uh, well, my buddy, he buys it. And he sends it off to his tech. And he gets it back all refurbished. You know, the electronics all gone through and everything. And he invites me over and he goes, come see, like, why I bought it. Bring your records and we'll sit down and listen to them, right? And so I go and I do that. And I put on some records. And it's like, they're ones I've heard, you know, hundreds of times. But all of a sudden I hear all these new details and I'm, I'm, you know, it was just an, an illuminating experience. And as I'm sitting there, I start to find my heart like slowly changing. Right? I was, I was content with the system I had, you know, an hour ago. And now I'm just like, I don't, am I content? Is this gonna cut it? You know? And uh, once I saw my friend had something better, I wasn't so sure um, that what I had was enough. I found myself starting to be less excited with mine and starting to calculate. How many birthdays do I have to skip in order to get one of these systems, or preferably even better? Um, I think we've all done this. you know. Maybe it was when you were a kid uh, and it was a toy that your neighbor had. Uh, maybe it was a, a vacation you wanted to take, or even, even a home, a bigger home. Maybe it was a truck, right? I know in Lapine trucks are pretty popular, you know, the higher the better. I go to McDonald's and everybody's having like a contest of how tall their truck is and they're using like ladders to get into them now. You know, sometimes we don't know what we want until we see that our neighbors have it, right? If they get a jet ski, all of a sudden I'm looking at jet jet ski pamphlets. You know, if they build a pool, I'm like, you know what? I think I need a pool. It's time for, I'm a pool person. What do we call this, right? We call it keeping up with the Joneses. You make a lifestyle out of this and we call it a rat race, right? Now, this is one extreme that the preacher reminds us is vanity and a striving after wind it may keep our economy strong uh, but it does little to bring us lasting joy or, or peace or meaning now in verse 5 the preacher warns us about kind of the other extreme by saying this he says the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh now this is kind of an, an odd thing to say but it's a powerful um, visual metaphor for us it puts an interesting image in our mind. Who would who would do that? It's kind of my first reaction uh, when I read that. We imagine, though, someone giving up, someone dropping out, right? They're looking at their neighbor who is just working and working and working, trying to keep up with everybody else, and they decide, you know what? I'm not even going to do that. I'm not even going to bother. I'm not even going to enter this rat race. I'm just going to do nothing, right? I'm going to sit here and just do nothing. Uh, maybe, maybe that'll bring me happiness, but here, too, is a trap, right? Here, too, is foolishness the preacher says that far from being wise and avoiding the trap of keeping up with the joneses this person refuses to work and eats his own flesh and this just means that no longer to able to buy bread right he consumes himself i think we can take this statement a few different ways Um, but before we get into that it's important to be reminded that god created us to work Right? He created us to work and enjoy the fruits of our labor. I don't know what to do about that wind. What if I stand? No, it doesn't help. All right. We're going to have to deal with it. All right. In Genesis 2, it says this. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant was in the field, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, it says, There was no man to work the ground. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now this is in Genesis 2, right? We know that the fall comes in Genesis 3, so work predates the fall. God worked in creation and we were created in his image. We were created to work. It's important we understand this, I think, so that we understand Solomon's advice here and in other places in Ecclesiastes regarding work. The problem isn't with work. It's with sin and the consequences of it. Is it as loud out there as it is up here? All right. I'm just going to try to ignore it. All right. like, did I say something wrong, Lord? Okay. Um, all right. The problem isn't with work. Remember, um, it's, it's with sin. Remember what God said to Adam and Eve after they had sinned. He said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth, forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So sin isn't the cause of our work. I want that to be clear. I think it's important, but it does frustrate our work and make it more difficult to enjoy, right? Thorns and thistles. Now, knowing that we are designed to work, let's return to Solomon's words that the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What happens when we refuse to work, right? What happens when we drop out? We destroy ourselves. One of the problems with refusing to work is that it gives us too much time. You've heard the old saying that idle hands are the devil's workshop. With too much time on our hands, our nature is to turn inward, right? To begin just focusing on ourselves all day. Rather than working and providing for others and finding purpose and meaning in that, we kind of just turn inward and it can lead to depression, Um, I've seen this in friends of mine. It can lead to a journey into self that leads away from God and others. It can lead to an eating of our own flesh. Sometimes we think that paradise would be the absence of work. I certainly thought that as a kid uh, when I had chores, you know, and I just thought, oh, these chores exist because sin exists. That's not really true. Maybe my, like, hatred of chores exists because sin exists. Um, But that's on me. So Solomon Helpfully, here offers us a better way than these two extremes. He says, This better is a handful with quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. The middle way is simply to be satisfied with what God has given you. Sure, work hard, right? Prosper, enjoy, share. But never forget that all this comes from God and it is only from Him. That satisfaction and meaning come. Not from a taller truck or, you know, having our day to ourselves and refusing to work. Not that a day off is a bad thing, don't. (laughs) It's good to rest. All right, in chapter 2, the preacher says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He says, There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him... Who can eat or have enjoyment? Apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? All right, in this next section, we're going to deal with another pitfall that relates to work and its profits. Uh, In verse 7 here, he says, Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with his riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling or depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So the picture here in this section is a person who is alone in the world, and yet works and works and works without ever enjoying or understanding what all this work is for. Remember what we read just now in Ecclesiastes 2, he is unable to enjoy what he has. He works day in and day out, but his eyes are never satisfied with his riches. It's never enough, he always wants more. And the preacher says this also is vanity and an unhappy business. Now, this obsession with wealth, as I thought about this this week, this obsession with with wealth and a desire for more uh, reminded me of characters from the book The Hobbit. Um, Anybody love Tolkien? I'm kind of a Tolkien guy. Yeah. (laughs) In the book, Bilbo, which is a fun name to say, Bilbo, uh, goes on an unlikely adventure to recover some dwarves' lost gold. And uh, by lost, I mean buried under a mountain, And by buried under a mountain, I mean buried under a mountain with a dragon on top of it. And that's the problem of the book. And the dragon sleeps on top of these piles of gold like it's a comfortable bed. Um, We're told that the dragon is consumed by his love of the treasure. He doesn't want even just a single coin uh, to go missing. In the book, they call this dragon sickness, right? And it doesn't only take over the hearts of dragons, but of people as well. The love of money and treasure infects people and causes them to do crazy things. One guy, who's kind of the mayor of the town, steals a bunch of the town's gold and dies out in the wilderness like clutching his gold. Like he valued the treasure more than his own life. The dwarf king, after recovering the treasure from the dragon, loses his mind and pushes all his friends and family away. He was so worried about losing some of the gold that he couldn't even enjoy the victory consumed with his riches and the truth is is that we we are all vulnerable to dragon sickness in different ways we're all capable of being consumed by money maybe we're not interested in sleeping on a pile of gold maybe you are I don't know your life Um, but how many times in our lives does money control our decisions right how many times uh, when we have options in our lives are we are we unable to to think of those options except in terms of money. What career should I choose? You know, when when should I get married? Who should I marry? Where should I live? Right? This is a popular one today. People who would have never considered leaving central Oregon a few years ago are now kind of seeing what their neighbors houses are selling for and all of a sudden it's kind of, "Huh, maybe I should, you know, maybe I should sell and get out of here." And I'm not I'm not saying this to shame anyone, and it's certainly not wrong to sell your house. Um, I'm just trying to show that this might be part of what a love of money looks like for some of us. That we consider money first, often in the name of good stewardship. Um, Do we seek the kingdom of God first, like Jesus said in Matthew 6? Or do we seek financial stability or security or freedom first? kind of serve God with what's left. I mean, this is something I, I think a lot about for myself, right? I'm just, I'm just as able as anyone else to consider money first. Um, and this is an area where I think everyone must search their hearts and consider this for themselves. What's, what's right for one person to do may not be right for the next. Many of us are blessed with the ability to choose our jobs um, and our houses, and with much freedom here, I think we should be mindful um, of God and to seek his kingdom first. I mean, how many times do the scriptures warn the rich? What did Jesus say? Right? He said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He said, you cannot serve God and money. But how are we to avoid this? What is, it, what, is it, what is it supposed to look like? I think we work to share the rewards with others. When we do, we find that the deepest reward for our toil is found in the sharing of its fruits with those around us. This is because God designed it this way. When we hoard riches and rewards from our labor, we're breaking with God's design. Paul advises thieves in Ephesians 4. He's talking to thieves who have now become Christians, and he says this, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So our labor and rewards are meant to be shared. I think if we lose sight of this, we end up serving the wrong master. These last few weeks, as I thought about this picture of a man just working himself mad, but with no one to share the prophets with, I kept being hit with a phrase that sounds kind of like a proverb, but instead was borrowed from a book. It says, happiness is only real when shared. Take a moment to think of the happiest times of your life. When were you filled with the most joy? Are you alone in those memories? Probably not. Or are you surrounded with others enjoying the fruits of your labor? Our toil and our rewards are both gifts from God. They were created good and are best enjoyed when shared. Okay, now we're going to do something a little bit unusual here. We're going to jump in our text um, today to verses 13 to 16, then we'll come back to 9 to 12. Um, Taking that section last will help us kind of put everything in perspective at the end. So starting in verse 13, it says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born born poor. I saw that all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to take the king's place, there was no end of all the people, of all whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. All right, this section reads a bit awkwardly because of the pronouns um, used and the questions of whether or not Solomon is referring to another story from the scriptures. If you study this section in commentaries, uh, you'll be met with a lot of different ideas of people trying to in this story into the narrative of Joseph or another biblical figure. Um, None of them quite fit. Uh, there's even a discussion over whether verse 14 is referring to the poor and wise youth or the old and foolish king. Uh, but for our time today, we're going to focus on what we do know. I believe that the observations Solomon is drawing our attention to are clear without really getting into those, those questions. But it's an interesting study. Um, this section points out two truths. The first one is the importance of teachability. The second one is the vanity of political progress. So the picture here is of two people. One is a poor and wise youth, and the other is an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So sometimes there is wisdom in the youth. Sometimes there is foolishness in the old. Sometimes we see that the young have the right answers. Now... I hope that doesn't ruffle any feathers. But those, <laughs> those of you, we're going to do a little experiment here. Those of you who are older now, do you remember when you were young, feeling like you knew how to make things better? Maybe in your family, maybe in society. Um, do you remember being frustrated that it seemed like it was the older people who held all the power? Now that you're older. Doesn't it seem like young people today cannot be trusted? So this kind of cycle of young and old wisdom and foolishness is part of the vanity that the preacher's getting at here. Um, let's be clear, right? I want to be clear about this. He's not saying the young are always wise and the old are always foolish. That would be silly. That would be foolish. Um, he's saying that even though even when one is wise, the other often can't hear it. Even those who start as wise, May end up as fools now we live in a world where we use generational nicknames as slurs right these millennials they're ruining everything i've heard that in bible studies here at church like i'm in the corner kind of sitting there going like do they not know like i'm a millennial and i've done it too right i've made generalizations about other generations But even this isn't new. In the mid-60s, there was a saying among civil rights activists, don't trust anyone over 30. (laughs) Don't trust anyone over 30. My dad told me that when I was a kid. Not like to do it, but he told me the story of it. And I just thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. Like, I don't know. Marcy and I live in a bus. I remember when we first moved in. I wanted to get a sticker that said that on the back. Like, I just thought it'd be funny and kind of provocative. Don't trust anyone over 30. But, like, what do I do now that I'm 34? Like, just keep crossing out every year, just like 31, 32. I thought about it. I thought it'd be funny. But I saw a political cartoon the other day that showed in one frame kind of a couple hippies with, like, a sign that was like, don't trust anyone over 30. And it was, like, grown up now. And it was like, don't trust anyone under 30. And I was like, that's about right. (laughs) We see uh, in our society, in our culture, kind of a generational angst, right? And it really isn't anything new. But it works against our desire to make lasting changes in our society. Our inability to listen, to consider, to take others' counsel is a weakness that often leads us into trouble. The truth is that we need each other. When we dismiss the experiences and perspectives of others, we're robbing ourselves of understanding. The unteachable heart says, there's no wisdom that I lack, and there isn't, there isn't anybody with anything that I need to hear. But this is a tragedy, right? As I've said, we see this generationally. Um, we see it between different social classes. We see this in our discussions about race We see it in our almost total inability to talk politics with one another. Our different understandings and inability to take advice or to learn from others has left us divided from our neighbors. The preacher goes on to speak about this king. He says, There was no end to all the people all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. The story here is of a young and promising leader who replaces an old and foolish king. He has momentum on his side, coming from humble beginnings and rising to the highest position in the land. Though it seems that things might change and get better under his rule, in the end, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Does this sound familiar? I mean, it seems like Every decade or so, a leader comes along who promises hope or change or to make things great again. People get excited. They scream and cheer. And yet, years later, in some ways, it seems like not much has really changed. Or maybe not as much as we had hoped, at least. The excitement fades and we kind of prepare to fall in love with the next charismatic leader. Hoping that they can fix our broken world. We seem caught in a cycle and surely the preacher says this is vanity and a grasping for the wind. Okay, let's back up here to verse 9 and hear this from our text. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken. Two are better than one, says the preacher. And I counted four reasons that two are better than one. They have good reward for their toil. If one falls, the other can lift them up. Two can keep warm together, and two can withstand an adversary. Let me illustrate the value of these four reasons with a story. A few years ago, now my grandmother passed away and went home to be with Jesus, praise God. And I remember when I got the call from my dad, uh, he asked me how long or how quickly I could get to him in St. George in Utah there so we could travel to see my grandpa in Phoenix. And I talked with Marcy about it and headed out that evening. Now, the fastest way to St. George is to go on a highway called Highway 50. We used to call it Desolation Highway, but the official signs as you're driving down say the loneliest road in America. It says that on the signs while you're driving. Like, that's bad marketing right there. But they call it this because there are very few towns. When you're on this road it feels like you may never see a gas station again you're just seeing the signs or it's like 300 more miles to a gas station and it's like what I have like half a tank like I was kind of freaking out why am I telling you this because I can remember being on that road and feeling one of the first times in my life just extremely alone I'm not usually alone right Marcy and I we live in a bus it's less than 300 square feet of together all the time But on my trip, around the time the cell service went out right, I started to realize I am all alone. And I found myself wishing I had a companion for these same reasons the preacher shares here. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. I drove 13 hours straight through the night. It really would have been better to have a co-pilot and someone to share the driving with. Two are better than one because if one falls, the other can lift him up. What if something happens to me? What if I choke on one of my sunflower seeds or run out of gas? Like, what am I going to do? There's no cell service. Two are better than one because two can keep warm together. What if the car breaks down and I'm stuck on the side of the road? I'm in the middle of the desert, like it freezes at night. And if the car won't start to run the heater, then what? And lastly, two are better than one, because two can withstand an adversary. There weren't many adversaries on the road that night that I was aware of, um, except perhaps sleepiness. How much easier is it to stay awake and alert when you have someone to talk to? Now, these four reasons that two are better than one apply to many relationships, right? A friendship, co-workers, business partners, and I would say especially to a marriage. In Genesis 2, when God is creating, the Bible tells us that God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So even before the fall into sin, Before Adam and Eve rebelled against God and brought a curse on everyone born since, God created us for a community. As the Father, Son, and Spirit coexisted in communion for all eternity, we were created in the image of God to be together. God said, two is better than one. Now after the fall, our need for others became even greater while our ability to do life together is made challenging by our sin and brokenness. What happens when we try to be friends or family or spouses or business partners? Often we're met with friction. Sometimes we'd prefer to avoid the trouble and go it alone. Sometimes we get the idea that we'd be better off if everyone would just leave us alone. I think a great example of this is teenagers, right? Do you remember what it was like to be a teenager? I do. I remember thinking that all my problems were caused by my teachers and my parents, mostly my parents. And I had good parents, like that's the irony of it. I had great parents. I still thought they were the root of all my problems. I really believed that if everyone would just get off my back for a while, like I would succeed. I thought they were holding me back. I thought I didn't need anyone else an embarrassing example of this comes from when I was a young teenager I remember my dad and I were going back and forth arguing about something I had done when in a moment of sheer frustration kind of as like a last straw he just said I didn't raise you to act like this and feeling cornered and not really thinking clearly I fired back with one of the most ridiculous lines to ever come out of my mouth I looked him dead in the eyes and i said i raised myself what a misfire right who how can you raise yourself <laughs> like can we still bring it up to laugh about like he just turned around and left the room shaking his head like there's no there's no answer to that i really thought i would be better off alone part of growing into adulthood is learning that we need other people. The solitary utopia that we sometimes imagine would be fleeting at best, it wouldn't last. We're better off when we're in community. Two are better than one, says the preacher, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now what is this threefold cord? It can be applied in many ways, because I think the author's point here is just, if two are better than one, Three is even better. At my wedding, it was applied to Marcy, myself, and God by the preacher. I've heard it applied to two believers who share Christ in common, and these are certainly true. But there are many applications because it is just a general principle that Solomon is putting forward for us. Now that we've considered the wisdom of our passage from kind of an under-the-sun perspective, let's step back. Let's dig a little deeper and consider what else this text has for us as Christians. Perhaps there's a greater fulfillment of this wisdom that can illuminate our understanding of the work of Christ. When we read our Bibles, it is helpful to look at what we're reading through the lenses of creation, fall, Redemption, and Restoration. These represent kind of the overarching themes of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Considering these four major points in Scripture help us understand how to make sense of what we're reading. And it's a helpful way to study a lot of different topics in our Bibles. Today we're talking about work and our relationships with others. But whatever topic we're looking at, we can always ask these four questions. How was it created? How did it fall? How did Christ redeem it? And how will it be restored? As we read through our passage today, we have considered how God created us to work and how he created us to be in relationship with himself and other people. We've also looked at the ways the fall into sin has frustrated labors and caused us to chase after work and riches to satisfy the pain of the real tragedy of the fall. And that tragedy is our relationship with God and others has been broken. We stand now before a righteous God, guilty and deserving of wrath. But this is where the story of redemption comes in. Let us consider the preacher's words that two are better than one but this time looking through the lens of Christ in this fallen world we find ourselves alone and in need we find ourselves separated from others and separated from our Creator because of our sin the ultimate two is better than one is found in our relationship with Jesus so let's return to those four reasons but this time considering our relationship with God through his son. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. Now the beauty of the gospel of the good news of Jesus is that we receive the good reward for Christ's work. One of my favorite Bible verses tells us that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That means on our behalf. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin is washed away, and we receive the righteousness that comes through Christ. Jesus worked, and we receive the labor, the reward of his labor, by faith in him. Two are better than one because if one falls, the other can lift him up. And we do fall. We sin, and we are not perfect, and yet. In Christ, we can be confident that he will help you back up. Hebrews tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Two are better than one says the preacher because two can keep warm together god will not leave us out in the cold what did jesus say to his disciples right before he ascended he said i am with you always to the end of the age jesus is our emmanuel our god with us and lastly Two are better than one because two can withstand an adversary. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus conquered death and sin and the devil. And the good news is that he has already won. Remember what our Bibles tell us. It says, Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height. Nor, de- nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate those who believe in Jesus from God. We are His. He saves us and teaches us how to love one another. And We look forward to the restoration of, of all things right we look forward to the day when we'll be in the presence of our lord one of the great promises of god is that things will not always be this way the way that we experience now our labor our labor will not always be plagued with thorns or thistles one day our labor labor will be to serve god and worship him in heaven One day those who have been redeemed by the Son, a great multitude, will be gathered together with our Creator. Let me end our time in God's Word today with a short reading from the book of Revelation. Speaking of God's people, it says this, Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. Lord God, we thank you for this time in your word today. We thank you for this opportunity to gather and to be refreshed uh, with one another by your word. Help us to value our work, our labor. Help us to value our relationships. Most of all, help us to value our relationship with you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.